Hello, and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today is the intoxicating and irritating feeling of trying to figure out a mystery with too many missing pieces. Intoxicating because our brains love a mystery. It's like sending our reasoning abilities to the gym for a workout. And this particular case has all of the elements that we love here at The Uncover-Up. It takes place during the 1950s, which is a time period filled with paranoia and menace. It features UFOs, which is a subject so dear to our hearts we put one right on our logo. And on a personal note, this case gives me the chance to go into a hopeless amount of detail about obscure airplanes, which is something that should delight those of you who write to us saying that I need to talk more about obscure airplanes, although probably won't delight all the people who write to us about how I should do it much less. But there is an irritating aspect to this missing piece mystery as well. Uh, For one, it involves death and loss, which is something that we should never lose sight of. As well, as much as our brains love a mystery, they also dislike working for hours on a puzzle only to find key pieces missing. Sometimes, as we'll see, those pieces are being deliberately hidden from us by official government agencies. But sometimes those pieces are simply missing and outside of human experience and knowledge entirely. Because on this episode, we'll be looking into the events of the evening of November 23rd, 1953 when two men in an American fighter jet were sent up into the sky to intercept an unidentified flying object and were never seen again. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Before we get into the specifics of this case, we need to spend a little bit of time getting ourselves oriented in time. Uh, There are a few things about 1953 that we should mention that will properly set the stage. First of all, the Cold War was in full flower by 53, and any sense of post-World War II security felt by the American population had evaporated. For four years after the horrifying destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by atomic bombs in 1945, the USA had been the only country in the world that had the capacity to incinerate entire cities in seconds. Even though the communist Soviet Union had a massive army and air force, America was still feeling pretty confident about their chances in any kind of new global conflict. But in 1949, using in part plans that had been stolen by spies, the Soviet Union was able to successfully test their first atomic bomb. But in the 1950s, if you wanted to drop a bomb on a city, you still had to do it the old-fashioned way by flying it there in an airplane. There weren't any intercontinental ballistic missiles yet. And unlike the Americans, the Soviets hadn't devoted much time or energy during World War II to designing and building heavy bombers. So Americans may have taken some comfort that, even though Ivan had the bomb, there was still no reason to start looking to the sky in fear. Except that in 1949, the Soviet Air Force also started flying the Tupolev Tu-4 heavy bomber, which had been built again with stolen technology. As it turned out, during World War II, a handful of American B-29 heavy bombers had made emergency landings in Soviet territory, and Soviet scientists had basically taken those bombers apart and put them back together piece by piece in order to start making direct copies of them. So now, not only did the Soviets have an atomic bomb, now they had a machine that could fly that bomb over American cities. And so Americans started buying fallout shelters, which almost certainly wouldn't have worked, but they did make some shady traveling fallout shelter salesmen some good commissions. This was a brand new situation for mainland America. In World Wars I and II, the country had been mostly untouched by enemy attacks, and now every large American city was threatened with total destruction. In the early 1950s, just as missile technology hadn't gotten to the point where you could just shoot nuclear warheads into other countries from underground silos, 
It also hadn't gotten to the point where you could shoot bombers down with surface-to-air missiles, either. You had to put people in planes to drop bombs, and you had to put people in planes to shoot those people down. That meant, in order to provide a protective umbrella against atomic rain, American companies like Lockheed and Northrop started making interceptor planes to shoot down any Soviet bombers that penetrated American airspace. And in the early 1950s, those planes were using another brand new technology, the jet engine. By 1953, there had only been operational jet fighters for less than 10 years, and they were still basically brand new tech. There was still a lot that needed to be learned about how to make them properly. Unfortunately, those lessons were being learned the hard way, through trial and error, and those trials and errors were causing the deaths of a lot of pilots, and a few people on the ground as well. Early jet engines were extremely unreliable and underpowered, and the physical forces that jet speeds unleashed on airplane wings and pilots was still being discovered, often when a wing was torn off mid-flight or a pilot blacked out from too many G-forces during a turn. The tech was cutting edge, and a lot of people were being carved up by that edge. Often a plane would be sent into service before the bugs had all been worked out. The Soviets and the Americans were constantly testing each other by sending spy planes or bombers close to or just inside the other's airspace. Then that other country would send up humans in interceptor planes at 500 to 600 miles per hour to chase off the intruders. It was a kind of a game, although a game in which the stakes were potential nuclear annihilation and the players were often killed in accidents during the match. But Soviet bombers weren't the only reason America was looking at the sky in 1953, because, of course, the early 1950s were the golden age of the flying saucer. Just a year earlier, they had had the great flying saucer flap of 1952, during which hundreds of UFO reports had flooded into the Air Force. Even the White House was buzzed by UFOs that July. Uh, several influential magazine articles about flying saucers had come out, and probably the most influential ufologist was a former Marine Corps aviator named Major Donald Kehoe. In the 20s and 30s, Kehoe had been writing science fiction stories for pulp magazines. But after the Kenneth Arnold sightings in 1947 and the Captain Mantell crash in 1948, Kehoe began writing more journalistic pieces about the flying saucer phenomenon. In particular, a 1949 article he wrote titled The Flying Saucers Are Real and the book he published in 1950 with the same title, were extremely influential in setting the tone and the content of the UFO conversation. Major Keyhole, as author of the book Flying Saucers Are Real, what is your opinion of these new sightings of unidentified objects? With all due respect to the Air Force, I believe that some of them will prove to be of interplanetary origin. During a three-year investigation, I found that many pilots have described objects of substance and high speed. One case, pilots reported their plane was buffeted by an object which passed them at 500 miles an hour. Obviously, this was a solid object, and I believe it was from outer space. Amongst other claims, Kehoe introduced the idea that the Air Force knew that the flying saucers were extraterrestrial in origin, but were keeping a lid on the situation because Air Force officials didn't think that the public could handle the truth. Between the Soviets and the saucers, watching the sky over the USA had become a very serious business. So on November 23, 1953, when U.S. Air Defense Command saw an unidentified blip on their radar flying over Lake Superior, they took it very seriously. An alert went out to Kinross Air Force Base, which was the closest to the target, and 27-year-old First Lieutenant Felix Moncla and his radar operator Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson ran to their F-89C Scorpion jet and flew off into the stormy evening skies to intercept the mysterious radar blip. Now, at this point, even though I've just started the story, I have to already interrupt myself. 
To fully understand this event, we need to spend some time discussing the specifics of the F-89C Scorpion that Moncla and Wilson were flying, which, I have to admit, makes me extremely happy, because there are a few things I enjoy doing as much as discussing Cold War-era aircraft. The Scorpion was designed and built for one purpose, directing cannon fire or rockets in the direction of Soviet bombers. It wasn't a dogfighter, so it didn't have the graceful lines of an agile plane like an F-86 or a MiG-15. It had a, a pointy nose, straight broad wings ending in wingtip fuel tanks, and a, a stubby barrel-shaped body that ended in a slender tail that rose up above the rest of the plane. If you squinted your eyes a bit and looked at it from the front, it did sort of look like an angry scorpion spreading its claws and readying its tail to strike. As a first-generation jet fighter, it had some serious flaws and issues. The tail had a tendency to shake itself to pieces at high speed due to the vibrations caused by the jet exhaust. Engine failures were common, and there was a serious weakness in the area where the wings met the fuselage, which led to a number of scorpions breaking apart in mid-air, one at a Detroit air show in 1952 when a scorpion disintegrated during a flyby of the crowd and crashed into an ammunition depot. But since the Air Force's only other option for an all-weather interceptor was the F-82, which was literally just two World War II P-51 stuck together into one plane, the Scorpion was put into service. The men who crew the F-89 interceptor do not think in terms of an eight-hour day or a 40-hour week. They are around-the-clock, seven-day-a-week men who provide an umbrella of protection eight miles above the Earth. It takes more than two years and $100,000 to train air crews to the exceedingly high proficiency so necessary in the defense of our nation. Highly trained mechanics keep their aircraft and radar ready for peak performance. These air defense crews must perform their duty day or night, regardless of weather conditions, a duty completed only when the universal hope for world peace is realized. The Soviets now have the capability of atomic attack on us. And such capability will increase with the passage of time. So wrote our president. The danger to our country can only be met with preparedness. The airmen are ready, but they need your help. And that takes us back to the evening of November 23rd, 1953. Ground control radar had picked up an unidentified craft flying over Lake Superior from west to east. So Moncla and Wilson were scrambled, and they took off at 6.22 p.m. from the Kinross Air Force Base, just south of the lake in Michigan State. Flying on an intercept course at 30,000 feet at 500 miles an hour, under the direction of the ground radar operators, at 6.47 they were directed to descend to 7,000 feet to intercept the target. At 6.51, they were told to change heading slightly in order to meet the target from the side, which was the best angle of attack to ensure the largest target and optimal closing speed. There was no room for a seat-of-the-pants flying in this situation. A pilot might only get one chance at an interception run. If you missed the plane the first time, by the time you were able to turn around, the target might have gotten too far ahead of you to catch up again. And even if you did, you'd be behind it and possibly have to dodge bullets from the bomber's rear guns. Even being a mile or two off would mean a failed interception attempt, so the radar stations had to provide extremely accurate information. The plane also had its own radar in its nose, and the radar operator in the rear seat would have had his head buried in his screen the whole time, providing the pilot with instant updates on target speed and course. If the target was identified as a friendly, the attack would of course be called off. If the target was an enemy, the pilot would unleash a barrage of cannon fire. 
and if the target remained unidentified, the pilot would try to contact it by radio, and if that didn't work, the pilot would buzz the target, and then finally fire off warning shots across the front of the target. However, we don't know which of these actions took place. At 6.52, the ground radar station sent their last transmission to Moncla and Wilson. At 6.55, according to the official Air Force report, Radar returns from both aircraft were then seen to merge on the radar scope. The radar return from the other craft indicated that it was continuing on its original flight path, while the return from the F-89 disappeared from the GCI station's radar scope. You've probably seen footage of an old radar screen on a movie or a TV show, so you can imagine what this would have looked like. The blip that represented the Scorpion would have gotten closer and closer to the blip representing the unknown craft. The blips met up, and then the blip representing the Scorpion disappeared. The other blip continued on, off the radar screen. A massive search was launched almost immediately. Because the plane vanished between the U.S. and Canada, the search was a joint effort. However, no trace of either the plane or Moncla and Wilson was found, and after a few days the search was called off. There were a few explanations for what had happened, one from the American Air Force, the official one, and one from Major Donald Kehoe, the ufologist I referenced earlier. We'll go through some explanations, but to be honest, I have issues with all of them. According to the U.S. Air Force, the unidentified craft that the F-89 was sent to intercept was simply a Canadian Dakota, an old and slow transport plane based on the DC-3 airliner. And then there was either an engine failure, or Lieutenant Monkla suffered some form of a vertigo attack, and the Scorpion crashed into the lake. It was a tragic accident, but there was nothing unusual or suspicious about any of it. The reason the plane wasn't discovered is because of the depth and size of the lake. As Gordon Lightfoot would sing of Lake Superior 20 years later in The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. I don't normally consider song lyrics to be evidence, but in this case it's an accurate description of the situation. Due to its immense size, Lake Superior behaves more like an ocean in some ways than a lake. The water is unusually cold, which prevents bacteria from bloating bodies with gas. While in most bodies of water, a corpse will eventually bloat and then float to the surface and wash ashore, a crew of divers who explored the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald almost 20 years after it sank discovered a drowned crew member still lying on the deck of the ship at the bottom of the lake. In addition, the idea that an F-89 Scorpion would have engine trouble or some other kind of catastrophic failure that would result in a crash was also, sadly, not very far-fetched. While it eventually turned into a reasonably reliable plane by the end of its career, in 1953, it was still suffering from many teething issues, to say the least. Lieutenant Monkla Scorpion wasn't even the only F-89 lost that day, as another Scorpion had gone down into a swamp off of Lake Wingra, killing the pilot and the radar operator. Investigators into that crash determined that something abrupt must have happened to the plane, since neither crewman was able to either bail out or radio in a distress call before the crash. The base commander, Colonel Shoup, later told the press that the men probably chose to stay in the aircraft rather than bail out in order to ensure that the stricken plane didn't crash into a residential area. However, while this all sounds pretty reasonable, there are some issues with this official Air Force explanation of the Kinross incident. For one, there's the matter of the Canadian Dakota transport that the U.S. military claimed was the cause of the unidentified radar blip. The Canadian and American militaries kept in very close contact during the Cold War and shared information about flight plans that would go near the border in order to prevent exactly this sort of thing from happening. However, while researching this episode, I contacted the Canadian government and filed a Freedom of Information request. I asked for any information regarding this incident and any information they had about an RCAF Dakota 
that would have been flying over Lake Superior at that time on that day. The Department of Defense did eventually send me some information, along with a note stating that some information had been withheld pursuant to Section 19 of the Access to Information Act. According to the documents sent to me by the Canadian government, the unidentified radar blip was not an RCAF Dakota. The only one we had in the area at the time was serial number VC-912, and it hadn't entered American airspace. According to the pilot, Gerald Fosberg, I remember the flight reasonably well, and just checked my logbooks to confirm the date. It was a night flight. We were probably at 7,000 or 9,000 feet over a solid cloud deck below, an absolutely clear sky above. Somewhere near Sault Ste. Marie and north of Kinross Air Force Base, I think a ground station asked us if we had seen another aircraft's lights in our area. I do think I recall them saying at the time that the USAF had scrambled an interceptor and they had lost contact with it. We replied that we had not seen anything. A few days later, I received a phone call from somebody at Kinross Air Force Base who was carrying out an investigation on a missing aircraft. I could only tell them that I had seen nothing. That was the last I ever heard of the incident. Of course, the Canadian Dakota pilot could have been lying about his location to cover up his own mistake. The height estimate provided by Fosberg of about 8,000 feet fits in with the intercept target of the F-89. But the Dakota pilot would also have to have been lying about not seeing the F-89. If they were close enough to appear as one single blip on the radar and it was clear above the cloud cover, either the pilot or the co-pilot of the Dakota should have seen the F-89 if it got that close. The Air Force explanation also doesn't explain why the F-89 vanished from the radar the exact moment it intercepted the unidentified blip. If the blip was the Dakota, then Moncla might have had to perform an emergency evasive maneuver to avoid colliding with it, which could have ripped off the tail or a wing off the Scorpion. If Moncla had fired a warning shot at the Dakota, exhaust gases from the cannons might have caused the Scorpion's engines to flame out. But either of those events would definitely have been noticed by the Dakota flight crew. Of course, there's always a possibility of a coincidence. Maybe the Scorpion just happened to have a massive but unrelated structural or engine failure at the exact moment it intercepted the blip. But that would have to be quite a coincidence. What if the blip wasn't the Dakota, but just a weather phenomenon? There was snow and ice reportedly in the area that evening. What if the radar blip that Moncla and Wilson were chasing was actually a false radar return caused by heavy snow? Then when they flew into it, the Scorpion iced up and lost control. If the canopy froze shut, the two men would have been unable to bail out. And, and certainly snow and ice can cause echo signals in a radar sweep. But the F-89 was following the unidentified blip for 30 minutes. An echo caused by a weather event would be unlikely to provide such a strong and consistent radar blip for that length of time. In his 1957 book, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, Major Donald Kehoe proposed another hypothesis, that there had been a flying saucer conspiracy. In the days after the incident, Kehoe had interviewed First Lieutenant Robert White, who was a public information officer for the Air Force. White told Kehoe that the ground radar operators had made a mistake, and that the two blips hadn't actually merged, but instead were miles apart. Kehoe found that explanation unbelievable, since not only did it go against the Air Force's own press release, but it would mean that there were completely incompetent people working at one of the most important radar stations in the country. So, as is often the case, a clumsy attempt at a cover-up by a government official just causes more suspicion and conspiratorial thinking. Kehoe at first becomes convinced that the F-89 collided with a flying saucer, and then later in the book starts to believe that the F-89, along with Moncla and Wilson, were captured on board a giant flying saucer. This hypothesis is built on nothing but speculation, and on the premise that there have been other planes captured by flying saucers in the past. 
As evidence for that premise, Kehoe mentions Flight 19, a group of five torpedo bombers that went missing in the Bermuda Triangle in 1945. Unfortunately, he provides no evidence that those planes were taken aboard a giant flying saucer, so it doesn't provide much support to the argument that the F-89 was taken aboard a giant flying saucer. Kehoe is sincere in his beliefs. He isn't trying to hoax anyone or prank anyone. But the book does show the dangers in starting with a conclusion you want and building out from there. Because the book is filled with wild speculation, most of which hasn't aged well in the face of modern scientific knowledge. Kehoe discusses canals on Mars, providing evidence for an alien civilization there, which is an idea that was discredited over a hundred years ago. He speculates wildly and without evidence about alien civilizations inhabiting Earth's moon. He asserts that the small chips that had appeared in the windshields in cars in and around Seattle in 1954 might be the result of warning shots from Mars or the moon. In short, Kehoe sees an alien hand in almost everything. Looking at an event like this, when something consequential has occurred but we're missing key bits of evidence, it's like looking at one of those classic optical illusions. Depending on what you think you're looking at, you might see a vase, or you might see two faces. Depending on what you think you're looking at, you see a Canadian Dakota, or you see an alien spaceship. The story took another weird twist over 50 years later in 2006. A Great Lakes dive company, unimaginatively called the Great Lakes Dive Company, published sonar images on its website of two objects that they claimed they found on the bottom of Lake Superior. One object was clearly the distinctive shape of an F-89 Scorpion, looking almost undamaged but missing one wing. The other object was large and saucer-shaped. The dive company's spokesperson, Adam Jimenez, gave a number of interviews to the press, and there was a great buzz in the UFO community about these images. However, the story started falling apart almost immediately when the Mutual UFO Network organization started looking into it. First, there was no record of any organization called the Great Lakes Dive Company. There was no record of any boats or offices associated with that group. Other than Jimenez and a man named Jim Bassett, no other members of the group were ever heard from. Jimenez had claimed that the Canadian government had refused to issue a permit for the group to dive on the spot of the alleged wreckage, but the manager of the Ontario Ministry of Culture's Heritage Operations Unit stated that no one had applied for a permit. Jimenez's bio also started to fall apart under investigation. He had claimed to have graduated from the Kettering Technical School with a degree in computer engineering, but the registrar's office at the school had no record of anyone with that name ever attending their school. No one from the local dive community had even heard of the group or of Jimenez, nor had the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. After a few weeks, the Great Lakes Dive Company website was removed from the internet. It turned out afterwards that the domain had been registered by someone in Australia. All in all, I think this story is typical of what happens when you try to investigate a UFO file. You get inconsistencies, you get cover-ups, you get runarounds, and occasionally you'll bump into an outright scam. In the end, sadly, one of the few things that we can say with complete certainty is that two families lost loved ones. As far as what I think happened, I have to say that I don't have enough information for anything other than speculation. But here is my speculation for what it's worth. We know from previous research that the Air Force was actively trying to suppress the UFO conversation in America in the early 1950s. Captain Ruppel talks about this in his 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, when he wrote about the early days of UFO investigation. Everything was being evaluated on the premise that UFOs couldn't exist. No matter what you see or hear, don't believe it. It was never specified this way in writing, but it didn't take much effort to see that this was the goal of Project Grudge. 
This unwritten objective was reflected in every memo, report, and directive. So when the Air Force was presented with an explanation for the missing jet and crewman that didn't involve a UFO, even though that explanation didn't quite fit the facts, they jumped at it. Major Donald Kehoe, on the other hand, built a wildly speculative hypothesis involving a massive flying saucer swallowing the jet based on a complete lack of evidence. But we also know from previous research and from some new evidence that is being revealed as I record this in March of 2021, that the UFO phenomenon is very real. While most reports can be explained as weather anomalies or misidentified earthly aircraft or hoaxes or meteors or whatever, there is a small but significant percentage of UFO sightings that are genuinely unidentified. And again, if I had to speculate, I think it's unlikely that the F-89 was shot down by a flying saucer or swallowed by some sort of interplanetary mothership. However, I would propose that it is possible that Moncla and Wilson encountered something from that small percentage of unexplained aerial phenomena. And while it seems unlikely that whatever it was actively caused the destruction of the F-89, it's possible that Moncla responded to the target with a sudden and drastic maneuver, which may have resulted in the critical failure of the wings or tail of his jet. Because the truth is, UFOs are a real phenomenon. This wasn't even the only time that a northern Michigan airbase sent fighter jets after UFOs. It happened again on August 7, 1965. Ten UFOs were tracked by a ground radar. Interceptors were scrambled, but unable to catch the targets. In addition to the radar signatures, dozens of visual reports came in that week from the surrounding area. Of course, none of this means that UFOs are extraterrestrial in origin. It also doesn't mean that they aren't. It means we don't know. A few episodes ago, we covered the Travis Walton abduction case. In the end of that, I came to the conclusion that Walton was probably just running a scam and that he wasn't abducted by aliens. In that episode, I mentioned a UFO skeptic named Phil Klass, who, after years of fighting with the UFO community, issued the following curse. No matter how long you live, you will never know any more about UFOs than you know today. You will never know any more about what UFOs really are, or where they come from. You will never know any more about what the US government really knows about UFOs than you know today. As you lie on your own deathbed, you will be as mystified about UFOs as you are today, and you will remember this curse. Sometimes I feel that the closer I look at the UFO phenomenon, the less I know about it. But I will say this, there is much more to this phenomenon than the American Air Force in particular and the government in general has admitted. And I believe that we are going to learn much more about this phenomenon in the weeks and months ahead. And with any luck, maybe Philip Class's UFO curse will be lifted, and we can finally start to thin out the mist that surrounds this topic. <laughs>